if you've been with us for the last, I would say, about four or five weeks, Clayton has been doing a couple of series, and he kind of continued on. But just as a quick recap, he talked about the bronze altar, which is, if you understand the, the old tabernacle, you entered via the, the altar where it was the shedding of the blood. A lot of blood. A lot of blood. And that represents justification. And he, he put a lot of emphasis in actually, you know, talking about, discussing, and bringing some teaching on was the bronze laver, which relates more to sanctification. And he specifically talked about Ephesians 5, 25 to 27, where it says, talking about the washing of water by the word. And he discussed a lot about grace, which is a concept that we can all grow into in just really the understanding of how God relates to us and what actually he requires. And, and most people confuse the concepts of justification and sanctification, and they are two distinctly different things. So I'm not going to obviously repeat what Clayton did, but then he, last week he actually branched off and talked about the parable of the sower and about the seed. And he actually was talking about, you know, really actually he made reference to George Taylor, who's taught in this church a number of times and George you know talked when he preached about it was about the law of the farm I love that sermon and and the reason why is that if we were all farmers we'd have a lot less issues I'll just say it very simply and you can go back to Clayton's sermon to glean some of that I wrote three things down as Clayton was talking about the parable of the sower because I thought they were very significant. And I had an inkling of what I might want to do this morning, but these three things I wrote down. And number one, people's future is in them in seed form. Limitless potential. The incorruptible seed. Number two, can't give it away if it is still in seed form to change others. That's number two. And number three, sadly, and very uncomfortable, the seed must crack open and die. So, I want to continue on with all of these themes and talk about a little bit about what we did today, which is real life, real people and yet a real God. And I made note of Tommy, something Tommy said just this morning I just loved. Because the call of God, I mean, a side note and a comment, this is actually, if you've known me for a little, I was one of my little kind of trigger points for me personally. In the church, many people speak about calling, and I understand what they're saying. But I actually think it does more harm than good. You know, because they get wrapped up in sort of God's plan for their life, and a lot of religious notions start to enter in. And Tommy answered that beautifully. He says, the call of God is to be an agent of heaven. That's the call. And if you've talked about your calling, wondered about your calling, I'm hoping to actually address that today to a degree. But to be an agent of heaven means a lot more than understanding your personality type, your giftings, and how you develop that into your call. Because that can very easily get divorced, yet again, from real life, real people, and a real God. So... Let's talk about your life. Let's talk about if you are a believer, you are a Christian. 
that means something probably a little bit different than it used to when it was, the term was first coined. But you are living a normal Christian life. And we're going to start with Romans chapter 5. And Romans 5, starting verse 1, says this. Therefore, having been justified by faith, justification, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom also we have access by faith into the grace in which we stand. You can't even understand this normal Christian life unless you built that on a foundation of grace, which Clayton did such a great job just talking about aspects of grace. You stand on grace. You can't actually entertain what it is, how to proceed, what to do, how to think, unless you actually build your life on a foundation of grace. And it continues on and says, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. Now, this is not a new definition. We've talked about this. Hope. Hope can be defined as a favorable and confident expectation of good. And and hope in this world is probably typically viewed as something less tangible but more illusory. Wishful thinking. I hope it turns out well. I hope things fall in my favor. I hope I have what I need. There's actually no expectation. It's just a wishful thinking, an expression of uncertainty into the future and saying, I hope. But hope in the biblical sense as defined, as used in scripture, it is a favorable and confident expectation of good. And you can understand that in the context of being saved, when it says that you rejoice in hope, and that word rejoice, very importantly, I think we understand what rejoicing means. That's a great outcome. We celebrate, we cheer, yep. Some interpretations or some, like the NIV as an example, it actually uses the term boast. And we don't really like, well, if you want to seem like you're a good person, you don't really ever want to entertain boastfulness as like a good thing. Because typically it's very focused on yourself. I'm boastful in myself and yeah, okay, scripture's got a lot of negative things to say about pride. But boasting can be about yourself or can be about someone else, right? That's what, so when we say rejoice, you're actually an interpretation. Another way to define that is actually boasting. So now you say, okay, hope, I have a joyful expectation of a favorable outcome. And you can certainly say that once you become a believer, his seed, incorruptible seed, is actually put in you as a deposit. So you actually have full confidence when your life wraps up that you will enter into glory. And that's one of the aspects of scripture that's bringing out. So you can actually be boastful about that. If you actually had an opportunity to have an honest conversation with your coworker who may not be a believer, because it says, you know, we should always have a reason to give reasons for the hope that we carry. And he says, well, why why are you so peaceful? Because that's an issue today. A lot lot of anxiety, not much peace. I said, well, well, I don't get you. He says, well, yeah, my life might actually not be fantastic right now, but in the end of my days, I am set. My future is secure. This body, yeah, problems, it's going to be imperishable. It's going to come upon the perishable. My future is secured in eternal dwellings. I have no fear. And actually imagine just being boastful about it. You're not boasting in yourself because you didn't do it. You were justified by his blood. 
but you could actually boast about the hope that you have. And I trust that you do because your future is secure. There is no doubt. You have that deposit called the Holy Spirit that guarantees the redemption of your body. That's just scripture. So the practical outworking of that is rejoicing, certainly, but you can actually boast about it because it is a sure thing. It is not in doubt. It is not in question. So let's continue on reading. I trust that you're boastful. And in verse 3 of Romans chapter 5, it then says, And not only that, but we also glory in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. Now hope does not disappoint, because the love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who was given to us. So, I hope you realize I set you up, right? I hope you realize that. My boys understand that. So when it says in verse 3 that we also glory, that's the same word as rejoice. Exact same word in the Greek. There's no difference. Same word, same meaning. So the implications are not so nice because as much as I can actually boast in the surety and excitement that I have in the hope that I carry in eternal dwellings, that same attitude I should have about tribulations. If you're like me, I don't go around boasting about the struggles that I'm carrying today, that I'm dealing with today, the uncertainty. The tribulations speak about pressure, about oppression. I don't go around boasting about that, and yet that's what the word says. It's kind of an inconvenient truth. The Bible is exactly that. It is an inconvenient truth that it says it in black and white, and yet it is my choice of whether I actually look into it as in a mirror and have that now change my perspective. That's washing by the water of the word. Now, this is not entirely bad news because you just have to understand the perspective of why it was written this way. Because if you're like me, this is not my experience at all. So, logically, and this requires no genius to actually sort out. So the glory or boasting in verse 3, you only get to that by the rejoicing and boasting in verse 2. You can't get to 3 but by 2. The author of Romans is Paul. Of that, there's not much dispute. Paul, you have to understand his perspective because the only way you can make sense out of how someone would actually assert that you ought to boast about the tribulation the same way you should boast about the security of the hope of your eternal glorification, the only way you can actually do that is by having an eternal perspective. So the author, Paul, when he wrote these two verses... His experience had already been beatings, floggings, stonings. And he was actually, I think when he wrote Romans, it was about 10 years before his death, but he had experienced so much to be able to pen the words that my grace is sufficient for you, right? The only way you can understand the boastfulness in verse 3 in the same way as verse 2 is from a perspective eternally looking back. That's the only way. And let me try and make this more tangible to you. Is that, so I like sports. 
I like, actually love soccer, even though I've never played it. Well, I actually did. I wasn't very good. But I love soccer. You know, so if you can imagine, I know this is an imperfect analogy, but understand the principle here. If you can imagine the World Cup of soccer, right, which is kind of a big deal. Why? Because it's literally the World Cup, the entire world. Teams that win it become legends. They become legends because every four years, you literally say, we are the greatest team representing a country in the world without exception. And if somebody were to say to a team, provided them a glimpse of the future, and said, you are going to win it, back to the future kind of thing, I mean, just imagine this scenario. It's an imperfect analogy, but imagine that they knew they were going to win it and be forever viewed as legends in their country. Going to happen. And it says, oh yeah, by the way, as soccer teams and coaches love to discuss about how teams develop, one of the things they always say is, we have to learn to suffer. When games are in the balance and you're just struggling to make it to the end in victory, you learn to suffer. And that suffering actually carries through in belief. So if somebody were to give you a preview and says, you're going to win the World Cup, and says, oh, by the way, you're going to suffer along the way. With that knowledge of the outcome, they would gladly accept the suffering along the way. That's the principle. You can only boast in your tribulations if you understood it in the context of the end. That's the only way you can. And now you can understand the role of fathers in the church. The fathers are the ones that have a perspective more from the end compared to the beginning. Now you can understand the vital role that fathers can play in the church for those that are in the midst of a tribulation and can't see the end of the eternal glory and hope, but just know the present. Fathers. I just want you to understand, I'm probably further to the end than the beginning now, so I have a different perspective of what I had 30 years ago. And I just want to encourage those that have walked in the faith for years, fathers, the hearts of the fathers to the children, to providing perspective of an eternal sense to give impetus to those that are amidst the struggle. Just tuck that away. I just want you to understand the role of the fathers. We need fathers. This world desperately needs fathers today, right now. But for you, the individual, this doesn't necessarily help you as you're dealing with your tribulation. I get that. So part of what I want to do is explain. So how do we, how do we provide some help? How do we take some of this burden, lift some of that burden from you? The title of my sermon was Pioneers, and we will get to that. You know, James chapter 1 says this. It says, My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, the Bible is incredibly inconvenient. Because that word all... Yeah, it's all, everything, without 
exclusion, not in part, all. So when it says, my brethren, count it all joy, it's not mostly joy. It's not 75% joy. It's not more often than not joy. It's all joy. Again, really, if I were to put that standard upon you, we would all just, uh, let's just go home already. Let's just pack it up. But this entire little passage, understand, it's not putting law on you but is giving you perspective, again, from an eternal part. Because what is notable about these four verses is not so much about the all, but it is about the why, which is so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Again, a perspective of the end looking back. Once you can understand the intent of tribulations, of trials, and what it's designed to work in you, that'll start to change your perspective of how you view them. And while I can certainly say that right now, in tribulations and trials that I'm facing right now, oh, I, 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 I failed. There's no way I could say to you that I can count it all joy. No, I do not. I said, but if I were to look back at my life and said, when you're in your life looking forward, everything is twists and turns, and it doesn't make sense at the time because you can't see. I said, but when you look back at your life, everything looks very straight. Like, oh, yeah, everything fit together. And when I look back at my life, at some of the things that I've walked through, I can tell you one thing. The things that I find notable are the things that I've actually come through on the other side and have actually, in a sense, achieved a victory. And I can tell you that my perspective looking back is I would never have changed a thing. Not ever. Because I can see now what has worked in me, and now looking back, would never have changed a thing. And it's perspective. And fathers, you can provide that perspective. So getting back to Romans 5, it says, But we also glory, boast, in tribulations, knowing that tribulation produces perseverance, and perseverance character, and character hope. And I'm going to go through this part really quick. So tribulations, we are intimately familiar with that. It's pressure, oppression, struggles, trials. Every single person can name one or more of those that are happening now and have happened just recently. Perseverance, we can understand, refers to endurance. You know, I was praying about this not too long ago, about one of my trials. And one of the words I felt God say to me, endure. Endure to the end. See it through. I did not necessarily receive that as the most encouraging of words at the time, but it's right in the Bible. It's right there. So you work through your trials, you work through your tribulations, and you endure through them, and eventually you come through the other side, and it speaks about character. Your perseverance will produce character. And what is character? It's an approved, tried worth. You can call it going through the funnel, the narrow part of the glass, 
pressure. You can talk about refining. Okay, yeah, I get, we get all that. But eventually you come on the other side and what happens is you are approved and tried and what that refers to is that you become marked by it. If you can look back at your life right now at the most significant sort of victories you had in your life, I'm pretty sure that has changed every aspect of what you can expect into the future. As you work through that in God, what has been shown to you has changed you because it's changed your very expectation. That's why character produces hope. Every victory that you have come through through a trial and tribulation, through the pain that you had to endure coming through on the other side, it cannot help but change your entire perspective of your future. And that's why character produces hope. Your very expectation of what is possible, what you know of God, and when I say know of God, about him, his person, his heart towards you, that now becomes part of you, the hope that you carry. That's the joyful, confident, favorable expectation you have of your future. And that's why this can now be put in the context of now you are more perfect, more complete, lacking nothing. I can, I can pray for any one of you right now, and I can pray for things that I have faith for. And I believe you'll be blessed. But the one thing you can never receive from me is my history. I have no way to impart my history to you. And if you've ever, in a sense, ministered to anybody else, the same applies to you as well. You can pray for me out of your faith level about the hope that you carry, about expectation of what God can do. And if you were to pray for me, you could pray your best prayer, but you could never impart your history to me. You can't. There's no shortcut to that. What has now, in a sense, been your struggle, now we can understand the, the context of Clayton talking about the seed. What has been worked into your life now has become fruitful in the way that you can now give it away and you can give some of your fruit, but you can't give me your history. You can't. I wish I could, because if you could, then I would go to every single ministry person that ever existed and say, just give me your history. Give me your history. Give me your history. And I would be better than all of them. Right? I want something of Kevin. I do. He can impart to things to me of what he carries, of what he knows of God and God's possibilities that he's seen in his life and he can pray that for me and I'll be blessed. But he can't give me his history. So, what's the point? What are you pioneering? There is a point to all this. And this is something that I've been thinking more and more about in answering this question of what are you pioneering? And that's why I get triggered when you start talking about calling. Because you're pioneering yourself. And that may cause questions to arise in your mind. What do I mean by that? What do I mean that you, each of you, including myself, we are pioneering ourselves? And what does that mean? So first, let me explain some obstacles. I love the Bible because it just says 
it in a way that if you just really look at it, not in terms of condemnation, but it's just basically forewarning you of all the issues that we get to work through. I don't take it as condemnation. I just say, well, thank you for letting me know that this is like a real issue. So I'm seeing this now. It's like I shouldn't be surprised. It's not like I'm failing that these happen to exist in the context of, say, church life. It's not a reflection that we're a bad church necessarily. It's just, well, these things are going to happen, and you can actually have an appreciation of how to actually work it through. So here's an example. So we all understand 1 Corinthians chapter 12 talks about the one body, many parts, and blah, 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 blah. You've heard that too many times. But let's just make it very simple about issues that it points out. Okay, so in, these are just a couple of obstacles for you pioneering yourself, by the way. So 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 16 says, And if the ear should say, Because I am not an eye, I am not of the body, is it therefore not of the body? This is an obstacle. Why is it an obstacle? Because this is an actual error in thinking by each of us individually. Because rooted in the, the root issue in this statement is that there's an aspiration of us individually to want to follow a model. You see somebody who does amazing things and God's like, oh man, I want to be that. I'm not that great. I want to be that. that. That's like better. Define better. That's just real life, right? See, here's one thing I've learned over my time. So I, I am an attorney. I, I will admit that. And I've actually worked with a lot of inventors because I'm an IP attorney. I did more of this in the past, still do. And I've worked with, with people who've developed technological innovations, hundreds of them, hundreds. And I, I asked them questions. Teach me your technology. Teach me what you did. Why did you do that? How did you come up with it? And by and large, as a class of people, inventors that I have worked with, and I, I would say like 90-some percent, they are so thoroughly unimpressed with themselves. It's like, wow, that's amazing. It's like, eh. I mean, yeah, I mean, anybody could have done that. I mean, like consistently. And believe me, it's not like over an overabundance of modesty. It's not that. But they are so thoroughly unimpressed with themselves as a group, as a class. Why is that? For me, it's like this. Nobody's particularly unimpressed with themselves because what they do is actually really easy to them. Why? Because they're gifted in it. They didn't have to try. Maybe they'd feel better about it if they actually had to go to a mountain and like study for three months and meditated on it and then get an answer. Maybe they'd be more impressed. But some of them, they actually come up with, it's like, eh, it's like 15 minutes. I was thinking about it, had a problem. It's like, yeah, it came to me. It's like anybody could have done that. That's pretty much the church right there, by the way. What God has actually put in you, what God has actually gifted you, the way you're wired, if you walk into a room, you notice certain things. Why? Because that's you. And you see problems because you're uniquely wired to solve them. And you do your thing, and it's like, oh, man. Yeah, I mean, I was just like, did my thing. It wasn't that impressive. Oh, but that guy, that guy, whoa. Yeah. Obstacle. Here's another obstacle. Next verse. Verse 17. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the hearing? 
If the whole were hearing, where would be the smelling? This is an error in thinking pushed by the church. What do I mean by that? It is entirely convenient. I'll use that word. It's convenient for us to put forth a model for people to aspire to. That this is the way we do things. <laughs> it's the way a service should look like. This is the way we can teach people to grow in their calling. Put people in buckets and have them follow a model. And really, ultimately, it's an attempt to push a model. I don't take, I'm not taking shots at Amy. I'm just looking at the realization of my experience in church leadership. There is a convenience factor to want to actually herd people into a model mentality. It's so easy to do. We're not necessarily bad people. I said, but this is just the word of God pointing out some of the obstacles. So we see the obstacles confirmed by the word, and now we address it. So these are the obstacles that exist that for you to pioneer yourself. So my job here is to try and remove some of the obstacles. So if you were to take a personal inventory of yourself, of who you are, this is, this is not an exhaustive list, by the way. This just very quickly came up with some things. I just want to present the principle to you. Who are you? You have a personality. You're wired a certain way. Could be Myers-Briggs, could be Enneagram. Everybody's all jazzed about kind of figuring out who, who am I, right? And if anything, the only thing I've taken from all this is that we're really different people. Like one of my boys, like if, if you really are into like Myers-Briggs, right? You know, you got the four different traits and like one of my boys is the exact opposite on everyone than me, which I find funny. We're really different people, and we just have to be okay with that. Number two, you have gifts and talents, both natural and spiritual. As I said, some of these are just natural gifts. Administration, my dad was a great administrator. Was that a spiritual gift? Let's just stop asking the question and just recognize that you have gifts, right? Because if God designed you the way you are to notice certain things, that's a gift. You know what another gift my dad had? Endurance. He persevered. Number three, and this is a little bit what where I'm going to, experiences slash victories. If I were to try and explain to you who am I, Dwayne Kobayashi, Pastor. Love that. Right. If I were to say, okay, who am I? I could give you my Myers-Briggs. I just got turned on to Enneagram. Interesting. Right? I could tell you the way I'm wired. What do I notice when I look into a room? I could tell you that. I could tell you some of what, in my immodest admissions, probably say what I feel like I'm good at. That's a really tough one for people to admit. I could tell you what I think I'm talented in it, what gifts spiritual that I may carry, what's my tendencies. I could tell you all that. They all would actually be 
and I'm, I'm being honest about this, if you want to know who I am, you, all, I could give you all of that information and you still wouldn't really know who I am. Because who I am is that plus my experience and what I've, my victories in my life. If you really want to understand who I am, you would have to know that, because that's me now. It is on top of what God has put in me by wiring, by personality, by gifts. Yes, true. I said, but if you really want, you'll never understand me truly unless you actually knew my life, because I can't divorce who I am from my history. I can't. It's impossible. And only then, because you could have somebody very similar with all the above in terms of gifts, talents, personality, wiring, but what's going to radically separate us is our histories. And I didn't even choose some of my histories. I didn't choose some of the situations that I stumbled upon that actually were trials and tribulations. I didn't choose some of these things. But I nonetheless walked through them, and that's my life. And that's why some people believe, and I'm one of them, you don't really find your destiny. Your destiny finds you. It's not random. Some of these things are not random necessarily. There is a that for which you were called. A specific thing, I believe, that God has invested in you, put seed in you, for you to develop to accomplish his purposes. And if you think that somehow you find your destiny, and I think it's actually the reverse. The destiny finds you. So let's move on here. So let's get to the, as I, I did say I was going to touch on the parable of the sower. And it's very simple, actually, because now I've given you context to understand sort of where I'm going with respect to the seed. So just to repeat some of the things that I wrote, so people's future is in them in seed form, and there is limitless potential. I don't need to say anything more than that. Clayton said that, and I just wanted to remind you of that. You can't give it away if still in seed form to change others. How do you, as, how did Tommy put it? The call of God is to be an angel of heaven an agent of heaven, producing change, bringing heaven here. How do you do that? So who you are is a reflection of what God has put in you and the process you've gone through bearing fruit from that seed. That's who you are. That's why I say you will never, you will never understand me until you know my history. Because that history represents what I have done with the seed to produce what now I can give away. Number two, victories through your pioneering will be life to those around you. I think you should probably already understand that based on what Clayton said, but I just want to reemphasize that. Because the hope that you carry, as I remember, you endure, your character has changed. You're now marked by that victory. And the fact that you are now marked by that victory means that you carry a hope and a very expectation of what is possible in God. And that hope now is life. That's what you have to give away. 
That's the fruit. You can't give it, you can't give that in seed form. That's the fruit that you give away. And thirdly, this call is entirely unique in you. Entirely. If I were to tell you that there is a program you ought to follow, I would probably be steering you wrong. And I showed you scripture why there's error in that way of thinking. Who you are, there's an element of seed in you that God's put in you. And as you walk in, in this life, you're going to produce something so unique because it's not just what he's put in you. It's the experience and the process you go to bring fruit from that. And this is entirely unique to you. So, I love this morning because we did some things that actually is really what I'm preaching about. And, you know, Kevin actually had you before he had us, in a sense, declare just Tehila and things of God. And the first thing he did was have you imagine, not to dwell on, overly so, but to picture the situation, the trials or tribulation that you are experiencing right now. And you have to just be honest about that. Because if you're in that, right now, the battle you face is actually just persevering and enduring till victory is actually achieved, coming out the other side. So if you were to actually picture that in your mind, I was praying about this, and this is what I felt like God wanted to say to you. So just picture that in your mind. And this is what I feel like the Lord wants to say to you individually. I believe in you. All I felt that he wanted to say to you, yes, you have a trial. Yes, you're having to endure. And I feel like he just wants to say, just tell you, just hear his voice. The God of heaven is saying, I believe in you. Apply that to myself. And it's actually very hard. I can understand why it can be hard to actually accept that. But I believe that's what he wants to say to you. He believes in you. You see, and I wrote this. It says, talents have been entrusted to your care because he has given you the ability to produce a return. And I didn't want to go too long in the parable of the talents, but it says he gave talents, which is in a sense what he gave to you, the seed. He gave talents to every single one of you. And it was in proportion to their ability. Think about this. That's what the word says. So the fact that you have talents confirms your ability. I'm not being circular about this. I'm just taking the word and actually taking it to a very logical conclusion that the seed he has put in you is based upon, like talents, is in accordance with your ability. He did not give you a task that you could not do. So when he says, I believe in you, what he's saying that by design, what I've put into you as the seed and talents is because you have the ability to produce. He believes in you.
so I've been reading about, I was reading this book, and there was this quote that I thought, I, and I didn't even put the author's name, but that's not even that important. But I'm going to put it up there, and I think this reflects a little bit of what I desire to see in our midst as an attitude, as a church body, as a leadership, and it's this. You can, uh, you can put it up. It says, we are constantly on a stretch, if not on a strain, to devise new methods, new plans, new organizations to advance the church and secure enlargement and efficiency of the gospel. This trend of the day has a tendency to lose sight of the man or sink the man in the plan or organization. God's plan is to make much of the man, far more of him than of anything else. Men are God's method. Men are God's method. And I'm just saying to you as one on the leadership of this church, I am trusting that that will be true here. A recognition that you are God's method. You. It's not a program. It's not a plan. It's you. And if you can accept that, now you can understand why as you pioneer yourself, now you can put it in context of the role that it plays in the context of everything that what God wants to do. You are his method.